You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I am your host, Sarah Custer, and today I am handing the reins over to my colleague, Eliza Compton, to tell us about what we are looking at on today's episode. Hello, Eliza. Hello, Sarah. It's very nice to be here and to have the reins. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very pleased to hand them over to you. Tell us about um, what you looked at for this episode. Today, we looked at the intersection of popular culture and academia. And I was very lucky to speak to two very different academics, one in the United States and one in Australia. Hmm, sounds fascinating. Tell me a little bit about why you went down this rabbit hole to begin with. Well, I think popular culture is all around us and academia can sometimes seem a bit opaque. So I was interested in where they came together. Our two guests brought them together in very different ways. The first one, Michael Denon, is a professor of physics and astronomy at the University of California in Irvine. And he uses superheroes and zombies to teach physics. So the popular culture comes into his teaching methods. My second guest was Liz Dufresne, who is a senior lecturer in communications at the University of Technology in Sydney. And she teaches music and sound design, but she's also interested in the way that popular culture is a reflection of society. So we talked about the particular work that she's done on the Australian recording artist, Kylie Minogue. Wow, sounds interesting. Who are we hearing from first? We're hearing from Michael first. Great, here we go to Michael. Welcome to the THE podcast, Michael. It's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, it is absolutely great to be here. I, I love talking about superheroes, any chance I get. That is music to my ears. Um, you have been described as a bit of a science superhero yourself. Can you give us a bit of a potted history of your academic career? Yeah, so I, I was an undergraduate at Princeton, as it said, and then I did my graduate work um, in pattern formation, which is a lot of fun because I say that and people wonder what I'm talking about. And it is actually what the words mean. I, we studied the formation of patterns, usually in fluid systems. Um, we, we would talk about animals as an example. Zebras have stripes, leopards have spots, but I've never actually studied animals. We did the equivalent in fluids. Um, then when I started my research career here, I added study of Langmuir monolayers, which are surfactants at the air-water interface, play a huge part in how your lungs actually work. Without a coating of surfactants on your lungs, you wouldn't be able to breathe. So we did a lot of interesting work there. But the, the sort of big part of a lot of my faculty career was studying foams. So foams are foams, you know, um, gas bubbles with liquid walls. And I, I, my kids love the fact, and I love the fact that I got to study something that seems so simple, but actually when you start looking at it, we really, really don't know why a foam can both hold its shape like a solid and flow. Um, it sort of works because bubbles get in each other's way, but that's not very um, good scientifically and doesn't help you predict their behavior. So there's a lot of known about them just empirically, but not a lot of good theoretical understanding. And that's what the fun of physics is, is to really do careful experiments and try and build up a nice theoretical understanding. So. Along the way, I also got interested, as you mentioned, in using things in popular culture like superheroes, um, 
Star Wars, even magic Harry Potter to actually start talking about really interesting physics. So that's been the the other fun part of my career that started when some undergrads asked me to come talk in a dorm about um, the science of Superman. Um, and from there, it was history. That is a fantastic story. And I think your way of telling it has demonstrated your approach to teaching in, in so many ways in giving us all these approachable examples. You've used, as you've said, superheroes to teach. Superheroes seem to be the ultimate in pop culture, accessible, we all understand them, we all know them, and you're using them to teach physics, which would seem to me anyway um, as a discipline that is the exact opposite, not known for its accessibility, quite opaque, and as you have described, your area of physics is also opaque and little understood. Is there more to this alliance than making a difficult subject approachable? You know, I think there actually is. And what it comes down to that we often forget, physics is ultimately the study of how things move and interact. It's very dynamic. Um, if nothing's changing, then physics is boring. And I think the hardest thing for students, you know, what makes physics hard is we as humans, we, we feel we understand and know things when we sort of have an intuition about it, not just... Um, you know, not just the words and, and reading it. And what I realized early on in working with superheroes is the reason this works so well is movies and videos and the internet has reached a point where you can see motion in interesting ways. And you can see both motion that's realistic and motion that's unrealistic and start to build intuition um, in a way that you never did before. And, and, and the next step of this, we're already seeing it, is really all of the VR um, and virtual reality people get, get to do. But so when you show a clip from a superhero movie, um, people actually can watch it and you can say, okay, does this match what you expect from the real world? And if it does, why? And if not, why? Um, and it really is a great way to have that conversation in a very realistic way in ways you couldn't do before video was so ubiquitous in everything we're doing. Yes, I heard you say in an interview, you were talking, I think, about giving a context for, for learning and in that way to help uh, student engagement. So I wonder if the superheroes also helps with in that regard. Oh, it definitely does. And, and I will tell you, um, I won't name any particular studios, but the plethora of um, you know superhero movies out there now has helped because when I first started... This tended to actually be really only working with audiences that were very familiar with the comic book side of things. I mean, Superman had come out when I was young, and so there were some superhero movies out. But, you know, the last, you know, 15 to 20 years has been just golden for giving everybody a context. And, you know, a lot of traditional physics problems are, oh, something goes up a ramp or it goes down a ramp. And, you know... I don't know, people don't do as much, you know, walking up and down ramps as they used to, perhaps. Um, my favorite moment was I had an exam problem where I mentioned a torque wrench and uh, half the class raised their hand and wanted to know what that was. Um, they weren't really using tools in the same way that maybe kids did when they were, you know, fixing bikes more often versus playing video games. And there's nothing bad about either. They're both really good things. It's just what is your context? What are you used to experiencing? Yes, absolutely. Does this approach 
Uh, is it applicable to any particular cohort? You, I think your famous uh, seminar is for freshmen and you've taught MOOCs, which I imagine have a, a broader um, continuing education application. Do you find that you focus this approach on particular students or do you use it across the board with your teaching? What I love is this I can use across the board because what I can do is adjust it. You know, the physics that we're going to discuss will depend on the audience. Um, but the context, um, everyone has some context around superheroes. A fun thing I will often do is I call it Stump the Professor. And I say, name your favorite superpower and I'll now talk science about it. Um, and that really allows whoever I'm speaking with, teaching, working with, to sort of control the context. And I know I'm working in a context they like. And then from that, I can take the physics out of it. That's so interesting. This approach obviously works for students. Do you ever have to defend this approach to your peers? You know, the nice thing that I got lucky with is, is my peers um, actually take the time to find out what I'm really doing. Um, when I first started this, I did learn that having an exciting title does tend to trigger the thought that you're not doing something really academic. <laughs> so if, if somebody doesn't go past the title, they get nervous. Um, but as soon as they spend a few minutes talking with me about what my assignments are, what I'm discussing, what the students have to do, um, my colleagues are, are very good. They very quickly realize, oh, you're actually just doing real physics. That's very exciting. So I've been lucky in that regard. I will tell you, you mentioned I've done MOOCs. I think it was a harder discussion around MOOCs when they first came out than any of my science of pop culture or science of superheroes. And rightfully so. I think people were very skeptical that MOOCs could ever achieve sort of um, the credit that people wanted. Um, and I, I would actually share with my colleagues, my real interest in MOOCs was more about outreach than course credit. Um, and when I framed it that way, people were like, okay, I get that as well. But a lot of it is just, I'm very lucky. I have colleagues who are willing to ask me questions, figure out what I'm doing. And in the end of the day, they're like, wow, that's great. Have any of them picked up your methods? To some degree, I think what was really nice was, obviously, we all have our own interests. There were some other really interesting general education and freshman seminars that people would do, you know, around energy or the environment sound, you know, um, we have a couple colleagues who were excellent musicians and would, would do a lot of really good physics in the context of sound. So I think yes, but it's just kind of in the areas where they're most interested. Mm -hmm. That brings me to another area that I wanted to ask you about, which was interdisciplinarity. You mentioned in that same interview, a course, I think that you did on The Walking Dead, which brought in health, maths, the calculus of survival when it became when it comes to the zombie apocalypse. Is this another aspect that you think teaching with superheroes can engage with? Oh, I think it very much can. And one of the things that always fascinated me when I was on the, the History Channel shows um, is watching them myself. And I think it's a great engagement for me between the arts and the sciences. And... And this idea behind storytelling, right? I think we often forget in academics, we, we risk getting siloed and we forget that there are different ways of knowing, different ways of understanding the world. Science is obviously, I think, very important or I wouldn't have done it. But the humanities, the storytelling, the arts, um, how we 
sort of think about human experience. And so to listen to people describe, you know, why they would or would not make certain choices around the science in the storytelling is very powerful. It's like there's reasons you would specifically break what we know as the rules of science. And then there's other places where you would specifically want to engage in it. And there's other places where it's just neutral, right? And so that, I think, is a very powerful area when you when you look at the pop culture, movie, video game, TV space. Well, it seems that if you are engaging with that space, that creativity is going to be a key element. There is an, an element in one of your courses where you ask your students to design a superhero. Is this another way of linking into that creativity when you're dealing with STEM subjects? Oh, definitely. And, and that assignment always had kind of a, a multiple purposes. One is I always wanted an element where the creative students could, could shine with their creativity. And so they could design it by words. They could give me an artistic picture um, and so on. And there was credit for the creative piece because I think that's important because what people forget is science also is a creative activity at key moments. Like you have to have a certain level of creativity to envision a new way of doing an experiment or a new way of, you know, kind of designing what you want to accomplish. And then from there, by creating your own superhero, I was asking students to make conscious decisions about do you want your superhero to be scientifically accurate or not? And if so, why? And then evaluate how successful were you? <laughs> Is the superhero superpower scientifically accurate or not? And explain why. And what was interesting was it created a space where you could get full credit by designing a superhero that was very interesting, violated the laws of physics, but you accurately explained why it violated the laws of physics, which is something students didn't normally get to do. <laughs> no, I can imagine. Do you have a favorite superhero that your students have designed for you? Well, there was one that the student, a student did that was really, I think, one of the best creative uses of electricity. You have a lot of superheroes who can shoot lightning bolts, um, but kind of their origin story and their connection to real biology was a lot of fun. So it was a case where it was kind of like a supercharged electric eel, but they had kind of done the work to understand how to make that work as well as possible. Oh, that's great. Do you find that engaging students in a creative exercise like that has an influence on the way that they learn or your learning outcomes? You know, I really think so. It's something I would love to study more carefully or partner with someone from the School of Ed. But I've always believed it's true in my own life. And, and I think I see it regularly in students. You know, if you're having fun, it becomes much easier to do the hard work necessary to learn something. Um, they, they kind of go together. Like learning is hard. And I think sometimes our students for, forget that. It takes time and effort. But hard work is easier to do if it's also fun and engaging. And I just think about, you know, my time coaching kids in sports. Um, or if you think about Mary Poppins and a spoonful of sugar, right? We know well in sports that when you, when you design drills, if they're engaging and fun, the students work harder at the drill. Um, if they're boring, you know, it's hard to get engaged. And so I think having that creative element engages kind of the whole brain and the whole person in ways that does not happen if it's not engaging. That makes complete sense. Uh, just to pivot just a, a little bit, 
you've done a lot of work with television and you do podcasts and interviews and teach with with superheroes so you've obviously got an interest in science communication why should academics engage with with this why do we need popular science well you know i will tell you my view on this has definitely evolved when i first started i thought oh and this is i think the classic definite uh reason why people say we need science communication. If people just knew more science, they would be able to follow it better, understand it better, and so on. And I, I realized at some point in my career in doing this, it's not about necessarily knowing science or doing science. It really is about understanding what science can and can't do and how science works um, and understanding where it's most effective and where it's not. And that's a very different type of science communication than I think we often see. Um, a lot of popular science communication is, you know, oh, I'm going to explain quantum mechanics to you, but I'm going to do it in more simple terms. And what I like about leveraging pop culture is it engages in the process of doing science in a slightly more explicit way, because if I have a superpower and someone says, oh, can you explain invisibility? Um, or can you explain the flash running faster than the speed of light? Those are two very different things and I can talk about the process of how do we study invisibility? How do we think about it as scientists? Why do we think we can build materials that might actually make an invisibility cloak? Um, why do we think this is technologically possible? But I can also talk about what is it in science that we think going faster than the speed of light is impossible and what goes into that and what's the process behind doing that science and where do experiments come in? And so it's a different, I, I, I coined the phrase at one point, I, well, I don't know that I made it up, is it really is about being kind of really, really good spectators of science. I tend to think in sports analogies a lot, unfortunately, just because I coached my kids. And in sports, you've got pro athletes, those are us, the professors, the researchers. You've got amateur athletes of a high level, and you do have amateur scientists, particularly in astronomy, it's easy to do. What we don't have are really good spectators of science, and sports has really good spectators. So I want to think about my science outreach as creating the really good spectators of science. That is such a fantastic idea. Science is absolutely fascinating, and as you say, absolutely creative. You're an astronomer. It's impossible not to look out into the stars and imagine different worlds, and obviously science fiction um, feeds very much on, on this. Um, I was reading your blog actually this afternoon and it was talking about acceptance of done or being being good enough. And I wanted to ask you too whether superheroes have something to teach us about specialization and accepting about whether you have you can have one superpower or two or three if you're lucky, but every aspect of your ability is not going to be supercharged. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I hadn't really thought about that much before, but it but now strikes me as something I'm going to talk a lot about, so thank you. Um, I mean, I, you've always seen this, right? A, a lot of the really, really good, compelling superheroes are compelling because of the limitations they have more so than their powers, whether it's the, the experiences they had before they became a superhero or their limitations now and how they overcome them and deal with them. And it's always been fascinating to me that like heroes like Superman are always a challenge because they they slowly became so powerful you had to figure out okay well how do we 
provide the limitations for them to overcome because that's the interesting thing. And how do they live in a world of balance? And what I really like is how many superheroes end up working in teams and groups because I think that is where society, certainly where science is going very strongly, right? We, we The challenges we face are complex and hard enough, whether you're thinking about new things in science or just society as a whole, no one person can grasp or understand all aspects of the problem. And we need to bring together teams that have different skills. And just going back to something we talked about already, this is why I like group projects in my classes. And, and even like, if you think about the design of superhero, it's an ideal group project between maybe somebody's the artist who's going to draw the, 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 the superhero for you once you design it. Someone's really good at coming up with a story for a backstory. Someone's really good at doing the physics analysis. So it's a it's a good modeling of this teamwork. And if you look at so many of the current movies and stuff, it really is about the superhero teams and their balancing of their abilities. Um, so I like that connection. I should have put it in my blog. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, for our, my final question, I wanted to return very much to uh, the nitty-gritty of uh, superheroes. Uh, I had observed that zombies seem to be quite popular at the moment. I wanted to ask you, from a scientific point of view, which group has the upper hand? Is it the superheroes or the zombies? You know, I think this is definitely a, a case. In the end of the day, it's going to be the superheroes, um, depending which ones you pick. I mean, zombies, um, their their real power is just making more zombies. <laughs> um but if you can avoid being bitten or whatever the current transmission mode is um, and, and, and figure out ways to contain and take them out, you have an advantage. I mean, zombies, if they get a little too ahead of the game, they do have an advantage of numbers. Um, but in the end of the day, I think um, you, you've got enough superheroes out there with either fire, ice or lightning um, and others that can fly that you can just sort of fly around with your friends shooting fire down. Um, and zombies have no long-range attack. Um, this is a fun question because it's making me flashback, and people can, can still find it on YouTube. I did do a series briefly with a, a gentleman, Daniel um, Glenn, called Fascinating Fights, where we would pick um, two, two usually superheroes, and, and we would argue over who would win in a battle. So I'm very experienced at analyzing these battles from the point of view of physics and science. So it's a fun question to, to, to look at. I know. This sounds like a late-night conversation at the uh, university <laughs> bar. I seem to remember similar ones as an undergraduate. Yes, yes. Um, and it's sort of like, I mean, I had a, a professor years ago who said when I took quantum mechanics that in that class we were learning to calculate quantum mechanics. Any philosophical discussion should happen um, in a bar over a beer. And I think who's going to win between superheroes and zombies has that same flavor. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'll be putting my money then on the superheroes if, uh, if the opportunity ever comes to, to bid against the zombies. Yes, definitely. Michael, this has been uh, an absolute pleasure, uh, illuminating and uh, really interesting and fun. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Okay, good. I'm glad that we have finally the definitive and final word about who would win in a battle between a superhero and a zombie. So thank you for asking Michael that question, Eliza. I know, THE podcast, asking the hard questions. 
exclusive. You heard it here first. Um, but for real, I think that was a really interesting discussion that you had. Um, one thing that stood out for me, you asked him about um, popular science and, and how he sees it and, and why he thinks it might be important. And I like that he talked about his own evolutionary thought around it and that it's really about showing the doing of science. And I love that he's using pop culture to talk about the doing of science. And he used the example of an invisibility cloak. I just thought that just took it, took it to a different level that um, I certainly am not thinking about um, popular culture and kind of public scholarship and what academics do there. And I also liked the fact that he uses superheroes in exactly the way that you've responded it to, to it, which is the accessibility element and the visualisation element of it. And the parallels between the way that superheroes can work in terms of uh, teamwork and also complementary skills, uh, I thought had applications not just for the actual subject matter that he speak, speaks of, mm. but also about the way that, that we learn and approaches that are increasingly being used also in research communities. Mm. So how does that track with your conversation with Liz and, and her work on pop culture in general, but then also her scholarship around, of all things, Kylie Minogue? <laughs> yes, well, there was a couple of, of intersections. There was the idea of easy access, I think, which is both of them engage with the fact that the culture is all around us, that the barrier to entry is a bit lower. Um, Liz was interesting in, she mentioned that popular culture is a kind of a construct, I suppose, in that Mozart is these days seen as a rarefied pleasure, I guess. Mm, sure, and it's and it's a, a certain portion of the society that, that listens to and likes Mozart. Absolutely. But you might hear that piece of music in a burger commercial. True. So the accessibility, I think, is where they cross over, uh, even though they come at popular culture, obviously, from very different angles. The burger kind of takes it out of the symphony house and puts it directly on every single person's television or computer screen. Indeed. Welcome to the THE podcast, Liz. It's a real pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks, Eliza. Happy to be here. We're going to be talking a bit today about popular culture um, and where it sits in the spectrum of high and low culture. When I say popular culture, what does this mean for you? Um, well, popular culture, I, I, first of all, I don't like high and low culture as a definition. <laughs> we can do, we can do that later if you want to, but um, popular culture is just what it says on the box, culture that a lot of people engage with. And so from that point of view, lots of different people will define it in lots of different ways. It's traditionally or most recently been tied to mass-mediated culture, so people often think about things that are made big right in the mainstream via commercial media or mainstream media. And I guess if you do want to compare it to, say, other forms of culture, if you want to use that horrible low, high or art or whatever definitions, the, the thing about popular culture is it's relatively easy to access in terms of, you know, literal getting in to access it. You can you know, you can listen to something on the radio, watch something on the television, get it on the internet relatively easily. Um, you don't need to often know a lot 
you don't need to have a lot of cultural capital to understand it. And by that, I mean, you know, you don't necessarily have to know a lot of backstory in order to understand what's going on, um, as opposed to, say, uh, another form of culture that might cost a lot to go and access or might require you to, to know a lot about it before it makes sense when you access it. Um, I wanted to ask you too, how did you get into this area of, of study? Um, what what began, What where did your journey begin in studying a popular culture? Uh, well, I've studied it. I mean, I've always been interested in popular culture and I, um, because it's all around us, you know what I mean? And it's to me, the, the beauty of it is it's what we do every day. It's around, it's kind of extraordinary, extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. Insofar as you know what I mean, it's it's the things that we literally listen to when we're waking up. We we listen to when we go to sleep. We play at weddings and funerals, and in between, it's the ordinariness of it. So I started studying it when I was I was interested in school. Actually, you know, if I do music or any of those English or any of those kind of subjects, I was sort of interested in. Well, yeah, it's great to study Shakespeare or any of those classics, but even then, understanding the context of Shakespeare, Shakespeare wasn't locked away in his day which you know Shakespeare's work was made for as many people as possible to be able to come and see and enjoy that was the idea of it mm -hmm. and that's what really kind of got me interested you know and that's the same with a lot of greats people that we perhaps hold up as to use that you know <laughs> to use that binary that I don't like because I don't think it's very useful but if you think about you know, greats like Mozart or something like that. Also, that work was designed to be listened to and enjoyed by as many people as possible. And somewhere, somehow, a barrier became placed there and it got higher and higher with the expectation that certain people were worthy and other people were not. Mm -hmm. And I think that what's drawn me to studying popular culture or culture that's popular with many, many people is really, particularly as an academic, to say, well, if lots and lots of people are interested in something, then surely it's my job to understand and honour the interests of those people. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to get to a situation where I think only the interests of certain people are worthy and the interests of others are not. I don't think that's right. Mm -mm. Have you ever had to deal with any pushback against your choice to study popular culture? Um, I guess it depends on what context you're talking about, you know, depending on what context you're in, you'll get pushback if you're studying the arts at all. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And depending on what context you're in, you get pushback if you're studying at all. You know what I mean? Um, there's So I think it, it all depends on context. And, again, it's about, uh, to me, like I say, I think the value is about the people that are being represented when we're talking about popular culture. Whose culture is it? What do they use it for? In what context? You know? Mm -hmm. And that's where I think, I mean, you can have fruitful discussions with people, but I'll argue with anybody who wants to argue that I think, you know, if somebody thinks that something is important, particularly if a very large group of people think that something that is important, then we should be working out why that is. You know what I mean? We should be considering that. I think that's our job as academics. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you go about studying popular culture? What are your research methods? Do you use primary sources? Is it popular media? Is it personal experience? Um, well, it's definitely the first two. I mean, the 
the third comes in sometimes, but then you also do things like, you know, audience studies and ethnographies. I interview artists and producers and, you know, um, we didn't talk to Kylie herself for the Kylie book, but we did a lot of, we looked at a lot of primary sources and a lot of media commentary. We did some musicology and some musical analysis around that media analysis. Cause again, it really depends on what it is you're trying to find out. So, you know, um, in that, we were really looking at why, like I said to you, why there was that big gap between sales and what audiences were buying and was really resonating with these huge groups of people and why the critics were so, um, were just so vicious. And not only mm-hmm. vicious, but it's one thing to kind of say, if you don't like it, just don't talk about it, particularly in the 80s, right? Like there was no internet. Yeah. So there's so there's so little real estate to spend, on any kind of music, little you know, let alone music that's highly commercial. If you don't like it, I don't understand why they were spending their time saying it was terrible. You mm. know, why not just spend that column space on something that they wanted, they thought was worthy if they were so convinced that this was not. Um, so in that case, but, you know, in um, the case when I've, I've written about Bluey a few times and I've sp- in particular um, interested in the music in the way that, it's music that engages multiple generations of people. You know, I think the idea that particularly things that pe- people might refer to as children's media really is multi-generational media because children don't sit on their own and watch stuff. And even if they do sit there on their own, somebody had to press play or set up the internet or set up the account or whatever, whatever, you know. So I spoke to the composer, Joff Bush, there and asked him about his process and, you know, how he was whether or not he was aware that that was when he was composing, was that the aim he was trying to do? Was it a happy accident? Was it something in between? Was he, you know, and how did he see himself kind of in a, as part of a larger legacy, you know, because things like that, you can think about Looney Tunes or any of those kind mm-hmm. of older, older pieces where we know, we kind of understand that generationally they've resonated. So mm-hmm. there's those methods. I mean, you know, there's lots and lots of different methods that people use. Um, but they're probably my main ones. I'll do textual analysis. I'll do ethnography and interview primary sources. Um, yeah, but, I mean, you know, it, it also uh, oral histories and those types of things. Um, but, you know, I think it's it really depends on what it is you're trying to find out as to what method you might use. Mm-mm, absolutely. When you're talking about popular culture, how important is it for you to be able to contextualize it so in the case of Kylie we're talking about 1988 and as you said um, there was no internet the media landscape was incredibly different probably even how we measured popularity was was different because we didn't have social media with clicks and follows and other kinds of engagement so how important is context for you in terms of studying popular culture well it's hugely important because Context is really what is how we decide if something is popular. You know what I mean? Like, and Mm. and in terms of the culture part, I mean, culture is really understanding what people do Mm. (laughs) and how they do it together. You know what I mean? So that's why part of the reason I'm hesitant with the high low thing is because it's got nothing to do with the individual piece of art and everything to do with how people use it. You Mm. know what I mean? If all of a sudden a piece of Kylie's, if all of a sudden that album, for example was copyright was shut down and it was pulled off all the streaming services and you could only get it 
in the releases that were put at that time or what it would, would it would cease to become popular because it's not in circulation anymore mm. <laughs> you know what i mean in the but in the converse again if you want to use the example of say mozart or high art or whatever you might say when it's played at an opera house for a very very elite group of people that pay thousands of dollars to hear to hear it being played that's you know that's elitist or high art but the exact same piece could be recorded and used in a commercial for burgers or something it's got mm-hmm. nothing to do with the piece of music and everything to do with the context mm-hmm. and that's, that's what's happened with Shakespeare that. yeah mm. but it, but it, that's what's happened with Shakespeare too right you know mm. again in its context of its day Shakespeare was absolutely the music the the um the entertainment of the people and I don't mean the aristocracy although the aristocracy of course could engage if they wanted to but it was absolutely meant to be for as many people as possible, as accessible as possible, as cheap as possible, you know what I mean? Mm. And somewhere over time that's been removed. There's been a sense that there's got to be, you know, barriers and hoops for people to jump through to really understand it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a very rich a very rich area that becomes more so the closer you look at it, um, I think. Um, are there any downsides to studying pop culture? Uh, well, I mean, no more than there are studying anything else, I guess. <laughs> you know, I mean, you you think you know a thing, and then you pick up a rock, and you go, "Oh, I didn't even know that. I thought I knew." And I've got, we, I've got more questions than I have answers. Um, yeah, so I, I no more than anything else. I don't think so. No. Um, let's go back to the let's go back to the book. Um, what was your reason for choosing um, for choosing Kylie, and specifically that first album? Um, so it's a series. So the thirty-three and a third series is a series that's based on albums. So it's mm-hmm. specifically books about a particular album, and this is an Australian New Zealand series. And so the editors put out a call for you know uh, to just if, to apply if you wanted to if you if you wanted to put in a book proposal. And my um, colleague and I, my co-writer Adrian Renzo and I, you know, had had a chat about it and went, you know, we sort of felt individually we couldn't quite do we didn't think we could do that moment and that reception justice of that Mm -hmm. book unless we'd written it together for the reasons that I talked about we noticed that there was this really strong young female following and this really strong sort of queer following and so we went well let's if we do this together that's their positions that we can represent and understand and also you know represented um in our in our previous research so we felt that we could do it justice by working together and also because because it was in so many ways such a groundbreaking album as well you know in the 1980s it's the one that kicked it off i mean Kylie's still going and it's going strong mm-hmm. she's people say that she's the most successful Australian musician of all time now I mean I guess that depends on what scale you're looking but certainly she you know certainly when you talk about Australia and music she's got to be up there for most people (laughs) you know what I mean um and that's the one that started it off it's also the one that you know tied to Stockade and Waterman and all of that stuff it's the one um interestingly though that you know people kind of laugh off or shrug off sometimes including Kylie herself because she's progressed I mean I thought I guess we all do that too you might look at the first article you ever wrote and feel a little bit embarrassed you know as I would for mine so it's you know it's the first thing she put out but from that point of view it was important to look at and we also wanted to look at it because it was just about her you know the the um 
a lot of the commentaries and things that have been written since and even now still talk about Kylie in terms of collaboration she's had with men. So Mm -hmm. particularly in Australia, people will talk about Kylie and Nick Cave or Kylie and Michael Hutchins. It's like, well, yeah, but she's done a lot of other stuff, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that album was before that, you know, so we... It was there was a bit of a big bang moment. That was kind of why we wanted to look at that one. In your research for the book, um, was there anything that that surprised you, or perhaps had a had an unexpected influence on the direction or findings? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, look, certainly, I was a bit shocked by how vicious some of the commentary had been of the time and then how continually just patronising it had been and even after, you know, like after that early, that late 80s, early 90s period, like things like when she's inducted into the Hall of Fame Mm. like 20 years later in the ARIA Hall of Fame, there's still all these commentaries that preface the fact that she was Michael Hutchins' girlfriend before the fact that she's sold however many albums she sold. I'm like, mate, she's here as a musician. Are you serious? You mm. know what I mean? And the fact that that kind of persisted was pretty shocking. Um, you know, I, I guess it's not overly surprising but a bit disappointing. Uh, I mean, I'm always a bit wary of, you no, know, if I have an idea and then I research it and I find that to be completely true, then I feel like it's wasted research. You kind of don't know what you, you don't know what you know until you start looking for it, you know, and then you don't know what you don't know, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. You know, that was too many there, but we're there. <laughs> um, yeah. So certainly I think that was the case. It was interesting too, when we were looking at so Adrian and I were talking about that, you know, that appeal to those types of audiences of young girls and and queer men. And it wasn't, it was interesting because at that time too, and particularly queer men, um, you know, she's not as bold and big as say someone like Madonna. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of called it, we kind of kind of girly, kind of gay because she because she was so mainstream. She wasn't the extremes, which mm. is part of the mainstream appeal because you know, even just looking at the music then, trying to work out why that was. And one of the things we found in that album was we used to joke, but there was no touching. You know what I mean? It was all unrequited love. Mm-hmm. There was no, there was barely any holding hands or giving kisses. It was all unrequited. And so was that resonating with those audiences because, you know, those relationships were the thing of fantasy. They weren't reality. You know, mm-hmm. in, in Australia at the time, the places in Australia, it was still illegal. Um, homosexuality was still illegal, you know, and so um, and and also coming out of the horrible AIDS, you know, in the midst of the AIDS epidemic and everything like that. So it's a very, very difficult and tragic time for a lot of people in Australia, in the queer community, obviously, but not just the queer community, you know, people that love, that had people in the queer community, a whole lot of weird, you know, very, very scary and tragic stuff was happening there so you know that idea of something being unrequited or just needing to be to be there but not completely overt kind of makes Mm. sense if you know what I mean Mm -hmm. in the same way too that if it was like you know it tended to be you know young girls teenage girls or young tweens I guess they'd call them now Mm -hmm. um that was sort of getting into it too and some people were saying it was the young talent time or the neighbors or whatever but it's that kind of pre-pubescent or early pubescent period I guess Mm, that makes sense because mm-hmm. it's non-threatening, you know, and it's not threatening to the girls, but we were also kind of looking it was non-threatening to the parents, you know. My, my, mm-hmm. my dad bought me that album. He might have had a problem buying me Madonna, 
because Madonna was, you know, overly sexualized. Kylie's there with a hat, you know. Nobody's yes. got a problem with <laughs> Kylie, you know. Um, this has been a really fantastic um, discussion um, about pop culture and its um, its place in our kind of understanding of, of the world as well as as well as the specifics of, of Kylie. Um, are you working on anything um, at the moment just to just to wrap up our discussion? Um, yeah, well, yeah, I'm working on a few things at the moment. I've got uh, what's going on at the moment. So there's another piece on the Wiggles that I'm thinking about, which has to do with um, I'm playing around with this idea of millennial nostalgia. Mm-hmm. So the idea that people who are now in their early 20s, there was this big thing that happened here and I, it probably is happening in different places too where people are going back to the music of their childhood, which makes sense, you know, like if you look at the Rolling Stones, how many people, middle-aged people and older, want to listen and pretend that they're 20 again. Mm-hmm. But there's something about 20-year-olds wanting to pretend that they're six again, you know, <laughs> which is what's happening <laughs> with the Wiggles. And so I'm sort of thinking about writing about why that is and does that have something to do with, you know, the trauma of the last two years or the last five years with the GFC or the last, you know what I mean, this has been a really interrupted generation in so many ways. So is there something about that? Um, I'm th- I'm doing some more writing on Bluey. I'm doing some writing too on um, a venue here in Sydney, the Hopeton Hotel. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on that too. But that that's just at the beginning of its journey, that one. So the other ones are a bit further down the line. Um, that's all really interesting, Liz. We'll definitely be looking forward to hearing and reading more about that. Thank you so much for your time um, today. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. That's great. No worries, Eliza. I love how Liz just really kind of wasn't having your binary, Eliza, between high culture and low culture. She really rejected that. Um, And I appreciate that. And it just shows how serious she takes her scholarship, as she should. Obviously, she's dedicated her life to this. But really how seriously the entire Academy is taking it, or at least should be taking it. And I think one thing that you mentioned before we listened to Liz was about this concept of accessibility. And I wonder if you would perhaps draw some lessons, not to be too grandiose and lofty about this, but draw some lessons for universities and higher education in general from these two conversations around accessibility, perhaps lifting the curtain a little bit on the ivory tower, bringing in um, more of a mass audience to how science is done or how research and theory are applied in an academic setting um, to really play that role of the public good that universities should be playing in a democracy. I think for both interviews, what really struck me was an accessible point of entry and it can be a gateway to a deeper understanding. Mm. In the case of Liz's work, you're looking about, we talked about gender politics and we talked about the um, reception of female artists. Mm -hmm. And I was also struck with her that when we talked about her research methods, that regardless of whether you're researching a a pop singer or whether you're researching Mozart or the harpsichord or your research methods are probably going to be the same. I think that was an interesting point to to take away. Hmm. And there was there was gender politics there and even though she didn't say it explicitly, I heard a lot of class politics as well. Yes. Yes. Hmm. And how these things have changed over time. Mm-hmm. So the the work that she's talking about specifically is the late 80s. We have a different 
society now, but certainly there are elements of it that are, that are still recognizable. So whether you're using Kylie Minogue to delve into how society works or other elements of, of sociology or literature, I think you're still coming to the same, you're just still exploring the same sorts of questions. Hmm. Or the Avengers to talk about the the laws of physics. It's all about accessibility. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, definitely with speaking to, to Michael, who is a passionate and multi-award winning teacher, you really get a sense that he is excited about his subject and excited to offer it in a way that connects with his students. And not only undergraduate students, but uh, but he works also with Open UCI um, and has done MOOCs. So looking at broader um, science education and in doing so, um, fulfilling one of the missions of universities, I think, which is to, to increase the general understanding hmm. this stuff is is fascinating and physics can feel very uh, obtuse but in fact it's all around us and if you're a fan of superheroes then you're probably interested in some of the laws of physics good stuff thank you so much eliza um you can definitely tell michael and liz's passion coming through on these interviews so um Thank you for enlightening all of us, and I will happily hand over the reins to you any other time you want. <laughs> thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure to do this podcast. And thank you to you all for listening. Uh, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you know how to get in touch, sarah.custer at timeshighereducation.com, and we will see you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. 